This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering four conversations from episode 32, our discussion with Stephen Harrison about what we learned at the Easel Congress 2023 and the American Diabetes Association scientific sessions about drug development, plus a vault episode addressing a similar topic at the last year's ILC Congress, the one now known as the Easel Congress, also featuring Stephen and Jorn Schottenberg. The vault conversation comes from our wrap-up to ILC 2022, the Easel Congress under a different name, one year earlier. It has some similarities to this episode. The key speakers are Stephen Harrison and Yorah Schottenberg, and the key focus is on semaglutide and resmeterol, the same two drugs. However, we know less than, and the conclusions are different. The conversation has its own excellent introduction for 2022, so let's allow that to set this episode up. Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering a range of conversations from our coverage during the International Letter Congress 2022 and from this week's Surfing Nash wrap-up episode. This conversation addresses Roger's closing question to the group about what they consider the most consequential change they expect to see as a result of this conference. Most of the panelists focus on the drug development presentations, with Stephen selecting the Rosmeterum late breaker, Michelle selecting the Synaglothite trial, which did not meet its primary endpoint, but showed again that semaglutide is a generally safe drug that can affect glucose and weight, two key elements in Apple's strategy today. The others lined up somewhere in the middle except for me. I focus on the impact of correct early use of PIB4 in primary care sites and other locations that manage patients who might have undiagnosed fairly early stage fatty liver disease and the importance of this strategy in getting ahead of this pandemic. ILC 2022 covered a vast array of issues around drug development, non-invasive testing, patient screening and treatment, and the entire process of provider-patient communications. On each topic, there were conversations that can enlighten every fatty liver stakeholder and promise a more optimistic future for us all. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Michelle Long. Not every patient's going to go for bariatric surgery anyway, at least in our experience in, in uh, Boston Medical Center, in our weight loss center, only about 20% or so patients are strongly considering it. So it's good to have these options as well. But yeah, I agree with what Jorn and Mason has, have said. We're getting close to the bottom of the hour. So Stephen, in that case, I'm going to ask you the closing question, which is the one presentation in the meeting, and my question was you saw, but you might have actually given it, that you, you think will mean the most two to three years from now, if there's one. Stephen Harrison. Well, I mean, if you're looking for the, the one present, and I hate to say one that I presented, but to me, the, the data that was presented that potentially is the most impactful is the late breaker resmeterone presentation. Because when you look at the therapeutic index of a drug, half the equation is safety and tolerability. When you look at what the FDA goes through, when they look at their approval process, safety and tolerability is a big part of it. And what I would argue is that half that equation was answered in easel. And now it just comes down to the Maestro Nash data. And if the safety and tolerability are still present in that trial, and there's a stat sig on histopathology, I think it's uh, it's very likely we'll have our first approved drug for NASH within the next year and a half. Yeah, and you said that in the last sentence, which I described to a friend of mine as a modified mic drop. Yeah. You, you weren't slam dunking the mic, but you were very, very, you were letting it down very slowly and not all that gingerly. So I get that. Listen, having lived through years of drug failures 
And even before that, years of trying to develop drugs that are repurposed. I've studied drugs in Nash now since I was a fellow in 2002. So I'm excited 20 years later to be on the cusp of having that first FDA approval. And call it what you want. It's just super exciting for me. It was a moment. I was on a plane and I wanted to like yell and I didn't. But it was a moment. I get that. <laughs> go, go, do your, go do your news interview. Right. We'll close everybody Thanks, else out. Michelle. Thank you for joining us. And congratulations. Look forward to working with yes, you. Yes, absolutely. Right. Bye, guys. Thanks, Steve. Closing question. A high impact or the high impact event in terms of something you saw at the meeting that was not that. The two, three years from now, you think will really have made a difference in people's lives. Doesn't have to be about drugs. Could be about anything. Jaren Schattenberg. Yeah, I think, you know, we're running a little out of time here. And I knew uh, Mazen would have loved to talk about this. The late breaker abstract that Ruud Lumber presented. And I was actually an investigator on that study on the semaglutide and compensated cirrhosis patients. I think this was one of the key presentations in my mind, too. Why? It was a negative trial in terms of the primary endpoint, which was chosen to show one-stage fibrosis reduction in compensated cirrhosis. And while it was very carefully coined towards a um, cirrhotic population that wasn't very advanced to try to achieve that, it's very clear that this is one of the most difficult targets to achieve fibrosis resolution from cirrhosis in uh, 48 weeks. The key data was it's very safe. It works on weight. It's working on A1C in that patient population. Considering those are the two drivers uh, of disease progression, I'm convinced that we're going to revisit this theme and continue this forward in that population with compensated cirrhosis. Now, I'd like to make the quick comment that we had a, a meeting with Germans the same afternoon, and we've discussed all the data. So there was some data shown around Hep B and even Hep D and regression of fibrosis. They're not even considering this at three years. You know, there's some mild changes with even with highly effective therapies, Hep B, Hep D, and I'm not surprised that it's not making cirrhosis go away in 48 weeks. That doesn't mean the drug don't work. It means, and I think that again is the central message of that presentation. It's safe and it gives metabolic benefit even if you're cirrhotic. Your Honor, as I was watching the presentation, I was mindful of the first time Manal came on here, Abdul Malik, a, a year ago at this point probably, and said, you know, there are situations in life where if all we do is stop progression, make things not get worse, that's a big step in the right direction. And when I was watching the SEMA paper, that was exactly the reaction I had. It's well tolerated. It does the right things. It probably stops the cirrhotic process from developing any further. You need more time to prove that, but that certainly felt that way. Jose uh, Williams from uh, the Netherlands, patient advocate, says, don't tell us what we want to ask us what we need. And one of her answers to that question rather specifically is we need to stop progressing. So I think in that regard, I completely agree with you. I would just echo the comments you are making about the SEMA paper in the late breaker session presented by Dr. Lumba. The other thing is that 70% of the patients on that study had diabetes and the mean BMI was 35. So a lot of these people may actually have indications for SEMA already that's already approved. So I think there are a lot of people who are practicing hepatology out there and thinking about, well, you know, obviously we don't have anything approved for NASH, but this paper in particular may give some confidence that we should think about this and already using approved versions of SEMA in our patients that have cirrhosis. And so for that reason, I thought this particular paper was the most impactful in the short term because it could potentially change practice 
practice immediately. You know, we'll see how that is disseminated and we'll see how comfortable hepatologists are in changing, you know, or modifying the recommendations and starting to consider uh, GLP-1 in their treatment program for their patients. Excellent point. I'm going to quote Yorn while Yorn is with us. And I forget which episode it was recently when I asked what was, oh, the preview episode for this conference. What was the biggest thing that was going to happen here for now? And Yorn's comment was, well, we may have a drug. And when we have a drug, we will think about using it with something that's been approved for other purposes so that we can clean the entire landscape in a real combination therapy. We never asked on the podcast, is that SEMA? But from the way you described it, Yorn, it felt like that was probably what you were talking about. You don't have to comment. You can if you want to. You don't have to. Blink one eye for yes and both eyes for no or something like that. I hear you. And uh, well, what can I say? Uh, <laughs> if that, thanks for... <laughs> I think that, no, I'm fine. You know, it's it's good. Okay, Louise? Louise Campbell. There was lots and lots of data just showing, that going back to the same point, that what we have got are things that do work to hold disease. There was a, an interesting session on um, statins, and there's a, a mixed bag of people, certainly from cardiac side, who don't think statins should be used, and some who don't. But actually, the de- I think it was a Dutch study, basically showed it was safe, it was effective, and um, it did have a, a positive outcome, where you can use medication that can affect and hold disease and stop progression, then I think there's more and more data in some of the abstracts and some of the sessions this conference that have supported that from physicians and primary care. You could certainly say, let's use that with some more confidence that we're not going to do too much harm and see what benefit we can get for those populations. Whilst we hold on to these medications that are coming out and certainly a lot more data in younger profile patients. I think the one Sivan was doing on the Prevenvatide was actually quite a young population, um, younger than we would normally see in the study sets so that was quite interesting and I wonder whether there's a longitudinal effect of watching those as they develop but um, I think it's all been exciting it's very encouraging and it's certainly I suppose stimulated the next conferences to come new data and new opportunities to research different aspects which is what you always get out of these conferences where can I take it now and I think that's that's exciting Amen to that I'm going to actually not talk about drugs I'm going to talk about the other conversation we had today the parts about ALT and FIB4 uh, the reason I'm going to do that is that as we start to look at more protocols around clinical pathways and uh, roles for multiple specialties, FIB4 tends to land at the beginning of all that. And a lot of the doctors with whom that lands are people who describe ALT and AST as liver function tests. For those who know, that's my swear word jar. You say that, you've got to give me $20. And the reason is exactly what Yorn was talking about today and we've talked about other times, which is people have misplaced faith in ALT and at the same time, a higher level of criticism and skepticism about FIB4 than I think it deserves. So if what we've learned courtesy of the Maestro paper Jorn was talking about was, to be polite, how limited the value of ALT is in these situations and limited only in that you could define it as neutral to negative. And the idea, if you go back to Quentin's paper, that FIB4 does a pretty good job of predicting actual events if you include indeterminate scores as part of the predictive package, we may have taken a couple of steps that will push us to do a better job of educating non-hepatologists, primary care, and the people at the beginning of that cascade that they need to use FIB4 and then to start educating health systems that we need to do a better job through EPIC and other things of making it available to people. And if we do that, um, then we will put the beginning of a process in place. And if you go back, I do, I say this all the time, why not today? If you go back to statins, that process started when folks had a lot of lab tests screaming, your cholesterol is too high. So if we can 
get ALT out of the way and do this on Fib4, which is hardly perfect, uh, but better, I think we'll have made a massive step. As Michelle points out, as you start to think about the idea that there are drugs in place already that will help, and as Stephen points out, that we're a decent way along to believing we may have dedicated drugs in a year or two, I think getting Fib4 lined up to be the first step is going to be a critical piece in translating all that good work into healthier patients. So I'm really excited about it. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our final ILC 22 wrap-up, Scott Friedman and Neil Henderson discussing some of the basic science issues from the meeting. Please join us for all that. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.